Good afternoon, and welcome to Outer Cape News on WOMR. My name is Matthew Dunn. This is your update on what's happening on the Lower and Outer Cape, drawing on stories reported in the pages of the Provincetown Independent, the Provincetown Banner, the Cape Codder, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. In this week's edition, we've got stories about the sale of a property in Orleans that was the site of a fatal fire in February, as well as the unexpected retirement of a lead detective in Provincetown. Will David is here, and he's got our exclusive WOMR Weekend Weather Outlook. And Ira Wood has a matter of opinion about hiding until Labor Day. East Ham builder and developer Tim Klink has purchased the building on Route 6A in Orleans, where a fire in an illegal apartment caused the death of a six-year-old boy and rendered the building uninhabitable in February. The structure has been vacant and boarded up since the fire. Klink, CEO of the Coastal Companies, bought the half-acre property from lawyer Ben Zender in mid-July. The building is salvageable, Klink said, with most of the damage confined to the upstairs room where the fire started. He says he plans to do a full renovation of the building over the winter with the hope of having the work complete by May. There will be two offices on the main floor, one of which will be occupied by the coastal companies. Upstairs, he hopes to build six or more one-bedroom apartments, depending on what the town will allow. Clink now owns multiple businesses, and with workforce housing in big demand, he says he needs apartments for his staff to live in. Clink bought the Yardarm restaurant in Orleans in May, only to discover that the staff there were all looking for places to live. In order to continue operations with the restaurant and to be able to recruit qualified staff, he says he needs to be able to offer them housing. Before this deal went through, Clink approached David Del Gizzi about buying the now-closed Lobster Pound restaurant just a few doors down. But Del Gizzi wasn't interested in selling. Clink also had his eye on the Governor Prince Inn property and the site owned by the Christmas tree shops. The town bought the Governor Prince in 2021, and the Christmas tree shops would rather lease than sell their property. The fire in February that killed the six-year-old boy started in an illegally constructed apartment. The building was licensed for two apartments on the second floor, but two more apartments were added without the required permits or inspections. An investigation into the fire found that the cause was faulty wiring in a fan, which was unrelated to the many violations connected to the construction. The building has been boarded up since the fire. The Provincetown Select Board has asked Cape Cod National Seashore Superintendent Brian Carlstrom to bring in professional mediators to help with the ongoing controversy over the dune shacks of Peaked Hill Bars on the Outer Cape's Atlantic shore. Referring to the Dune Shacks Historic District Preservation and Use Plan, signed in 2012, in a letter sent to Park Service officials this week, the Select Board wrote that, Although the National Park Service's stated commitment to follow the use plan is clear, there is broad disagreement regarding the execution of that plan. 
The letter from the select board went on to say that a lack of dialogue with the Park Service led them to believe that a facilitator could help promote better cooperation between the Park Service, the dune dwellers, and the larger Provincetown community. The letter was addressed to Karlstrom and was also sent to NPS Director Charles Sams, Assistant Secretary of the Interior Shannon Estones, and William Hall, Director of the Interior's Office of Collaborative Action and Dispute Resolution, along with Truro Select Board and state lawmakers. The same day that the Provincetown Select Board sent its letter to Karlstrom, the Park Service sent letters to the families who have long held leases on eight dune shacks that are part of the public leasing contest the agency announced in May. Joan Horgan of the National Seashore Leasing Team wrote that the RFP evaluation panel will not complete its work by the originally anticipated date at the end of August. Those families had originally been told to vacate their shacks on September 2nd if they did not win a 10-year lease. Now they have until October 31st, on the condition that they allow the NPS and winners of new leases to arrange site visits during October. Janet Armstrong, who received a notice-to-quit letter in June, requiring her to leave her family's shack in early September, also received an update from the Park Service last week. Carlstrom called to offer her a one-year special use permit for the shack, which is not currently part of any public leasing contest and which the Park Service was planning to board up until it could arrange such a contest. Armstrong decided that she needed time to think before proceeding. The 2012 use plan provides explicit instructions on how to evaluate applications for long-term leases and how to organize transitions when long-term leaseholders have died. The Park Service has not been following those instructions by boarding up dune shacks before leases have been issued and by allowing applicants to bid as much annual rent as they want in an effort to win a lease. That last change has come under strong criticism from the select boards of Provincetown and Truro, U.S. Senators Ed Markey and Elizabeth Warren, U.S. Representative Bill Keating, and community protesters on Route 6. A spokesperson for Senator Markey confirmed this week that a letter from Markey, Warren, and Keating to Park Service Director Sams on July 13th has still not been answered. The former Stag Auto Dealership property, near the intersection of Routes 137 and 39 in East Harwich, is under agreement to be sold. According to plans filed with the town, the commercial property and its massive metal building will host a lumber company. SBS Properties, a Brewster-based company, has signed an agreement to purchase the three-acre parcel from Peter Stagg. There has been little activity at the site over the last decade, although it was used briefly this spring as a staging area for a Netflix series that was filmed in Chatham. SBS Properties is owned by Christopher Diaz. The company and Stag Realty Trust will go before the appeals board at the end of the month, seeking a use variance for the ownership change. Diaz owns the building supply company located in Commerce Park Drive in Brewster. According to the petition to the appeals board, the applicant has a financial hardship because the existing structure for his lumber company in Brewster was recently destroyed by fire 
and he needs to relocate the lumber company business as soon as possible. Stagg said previous attempts to sell the property to interested parties were unsuccessful because the town didn't approve the proposed changes in use of the building. Stagg said he expects the current deal to be approved. The hearing will take place on Wednesday, August 30th at 7 p.m. at the hearing room in Harwich Town Hall. Sticking with news from Harwich, the town is now accepting applications for the new preschool family support program put in place by the Maytown meeting. The program's goal is to make preschool and child care more affordable for residents regardless of income. Each eligible child will receive a grant of up to $4,000 for the year, subject to limitations. Council on Aging Director Julie Wittes, who is serving as program manager, said the program will be able to provide funding for approximately 59 youngsters. Eligible applicants must be Harwich residents, who are the parents or legal guardians of a child, who will be three or four years old on or before August 31st. Applications received by September 1st will be eligible for September tuition payments. Applications will then be accepted on a rolling deadline throughout the year, with payments available for the following month. The payments will be made directly to a licensed preschool or daycare provider. Members of the Select Board began looking at establishing such a fund last fall. Select Board member Julie Cavanaugh set the process in motion as a way to help keep families on Cape Cod. An article was approved in the annual town meeting, appropriating $250,000 for the program. The Council on Aging Director said there's interest in seeking additional funds, but it's too early to know whether funding will be sought through a town meeting article for next year. If any parents or guardians need help completing the application or would like to explore other financial assistance options, they can contact Lucy Gilmore of the Monomoy Early Childhood Family Resource Center. She can be reached at lgilmore at monomoy.edu. Information about the Preschool Family Support Program can be found on the town's website. Chatham, Orleans, Wellfleet, Truro, and Provincetown all have similar programs in place. For Outer Cape News, this is Beth Dunn. Longtime Detective Meredith Lober resigned from the Provincetown Police Force on July 2nd, two weeks before she appeared on a list of law enforcement officers known to be untrustworthy in their official duties. On July 17th, Cape and Islands District Attorney Rob Galabois sent Police Chief Jim Golden a letter informing him that Lober had been placed on the Brady List which requires prosecutors to disclose all exculpatory or impeaching information to the defense in criminal cases. Appearing on a Brady list undermines an officer's value as a witness. Golden did not respond to questions from the Independent on the subject. According to the DA's letter, Lober's placement on the list stemmed from conduct relating to the 2013 exhumation of Ruth Terry. Terry was the long-unknown Lady of the Dunes found murdered in the Provincelands. 
Galibois' office did not respond to questions about the nature of Lober's misconduct in the Terry exhumation, how it came to light ten years after the fact, or whether defendants in the many cases that Lober has worked on since 2013 now have grounds to appeal their verdicts, since the detective's potentially impeaching conduct wasn't disclosed at the time. Ruth Terry disappeared in the summer of 1974 and was long presumed dead by her family. In July of 74, a young girl discovered a decomposing and unidentifiable body in the Race Point Dunes. For 48 years, the Lady of the Dunes was an unsolved mystery until last fall when the FBI announced it had identified her using investigative genealogy. Authorities exhumed her body in identification efforts in 1980 and again in 2000 to extract DNA from her remains for processing with advanced technology. In a 2014 book about true crime hobbyists, author Deborah Halber described observing Lober oversee a third exhumation in 2013. Lober joined the Provincetown Force in 2011 and served as lead detective until her resignation. She took over the Lady of the Dunes investigation and regularly appeared in the press, encouraging anyone with information to please reach out. Lober has faced repeated lawsuits from pre-trial detainee Stephen Smith, who has been held on charges of child rape since 2019. Smith asserts that Lober arrested him without cause and defamed him during the investigation by falsely claiming he had a prior record of assaulting a minor. The courts have dismissed Smith's previous complaints. Smith has an open civil complaint against Lober in Superior Court, however, and this week filed an emergency motion based on Lober's recent addition to the Brady List and her resignation. Smith's filing included the cover page of minutes from a confidential meeting on June 30th between Deputy First Assistant DA Russ Aonis, Second Assistant Tara Capola, Appeals Unit Chief Elizabeth Sweeney, Lober, and Carney. According to the incomplete minutes, the meeting was related to the DA's Brady policy. That meeting took place on a Friday. Lober resigned that Sunday. Two culverts on the Herring River in Wellfleet are due to be replaced by the Cape Cod National Seashore later this year. The culverts are part of the Herring River Marsh Restoration Project that aims to restore 890 acres of tidal salt marsh. The replacement or improvement of all the water control structures is part of Phase 1 of the project. This part of the project is key to restoring an estimated 380 acres of the upper Herring River watershed. The seashore received more than $460,000 from the Inflation Reduction Act for the work. Seashore Superintendent Brian Karlstrom said the culverts being replaced haven't been maintained for years. The culverts will be enlarged to make it easier for fish to pass into spawning grounds. The Herring River is a critical link between Cape Cod Bay and freshwater pond spawning habitat for river herring, and a migratory habitat for American eels and other fish that migrate between fresh and salt water.
River herring are a species of management concern in Massachusetts. This project will make the last mile and a half of stream more accessible to fish. The Herring River Marsh Restoration Project will improve water quality and make the area more resilient to climate change. Sources of funding include the Natural Resources Conservation Service and Massachusetts Division of Ecological Restoration. They have pledged more than $27 million and $22 million, respectively. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife North American Wetland Conservation Act will provide an additional $2 million in funding. Nestled in the Wellfleet Woods near the headwaters of the Herring River lies a mid-century modern house made from plywood featuring windows that panel the entire home's exterior. The geometrically sleek cottage is the Wellfleet home and burial site of famed mid-century architect and furniture designer Marcel Breuer. Now, almost 75 years after its completion, the house is up for sale by Breuer's son Thomas, and the Cape Cod Modern House Trust is on a mission to buy the cottage and save it from potential demolition. Peter McMahon, founding director of the Cape Cod Modern House Trust, said the house, taken together with all its contents, is a cultural repository of international importance. The house contains furniture, a collection of books and art belonging to Breuer, as well as other items important to the Hungarian designer's legacy, and is currently under a contractual sale with the trust, which is seeking to raise $1.4 million of the $2 million asking price in order to purchase the cottage. Although you may not know the name Marcel Breuer, you probably know his furniture, like the tubular steel chair, or buildings, like the former home of the Whitney Museum, now the temporary home of the Frick Collection in New York City. Breuer was a student at the Bauhaus Art School in Germany and became one of its most notable graduates, establishing himself as a pioneer in mid-century modern design, notably for the use of bent tubular steel to create his furniture. Throughout his life, Breuer lived in Boston, New York, and Paris, but he returned to his Wellfleet cottage every summer until his passing in 1981. With a budget of under $5,000, Breuer built a bare-bones home with no electricity or insulation. The furniture initially consisted of cinder block tables and Japanese mats, but as Breuer grew as a designer, the house did as well. Now, the house needs some TLC in order to be brought back to its original glory. Though structurally sound, major repairs are needed like a new roof, siding, and septic system. McMahon said his organization has already restored four modern houses that were owned by the Park Service, some of which were in much worse shape. The property is also a Breuer family resting place, as his ashes, along with those of his wife Connie and her sister and her sister's husband, lay under a stone slab on the property. The cottage also serves as a reminder of Wellfleet's rich modernist history, as the town was a hub for mid-century artists and thinkers. Breuer himself envisioned a cottage colony within the wooded area, originally purchasing 24 acres of land, but he couldn't get anyone else on board. He built his Wellfleet home along with three others in the area and sold the remaining 20 acres of land to the National Park Service. 
If purchased, the trust plans to use the house as a place for work-study programs where students and scholars will be able to take part in restoring the cottage. You can hear Ira Wood's interview with Peter McMahon on this week's edition of The Lowdown on the WOMR website. For Outer Cape News, my name is Matthew Dunn. This is meteorologist Will David with your weekly weather watch and temperature trend for the Outer Cape. The much anticipated and hoped for pattern change that would have brought an extended stretch of summer weather to the Outer Cape is just not gonna happen. What I've learned over the decades of weather forecasting is that sometimes no matter what the models are implying, it's much wiser and more prudent to go with the flow. In this case, the flow is the persistent northwest flow of air, courtesy of a dip in the jet stream that's allowing an endless parade of fronts to move through the northeast in what has been one of the wettest summers on record. And today is no exception as another strong cold front rides in on this trough, bringing us showers and even some possibly heavy thunderstorms through early tonight. The front will cross the Outer Cape overnight, ushering in much drier air on gusty northwest winds during the day Saturday. Then look for a quick rebound in temperatures with abundant sunshine on Sunday, my pick of the weekend. Warm and more humid weather will linger into Monday before another front brings showers and thunderstorms and a return to below average temperatures by the middle of next week. A fair, cool pattern will linger through late week before, you guessed it, a third front brings the next chance of rain. In the long term, and despite relentless heat that's gripping so much of the country, the warm air will be cut off from the Northeast and parts of the Mid-Atlantic as below average temperatures prevail. Elsewhere across the nation, the incredibly large dome of heat, so prevalent and relentless across the Northwest and the South, will merge and expand to include the entire middle part of the country later this weekend and next week. All-time high temperature records will likely be broken with heat indices approaching 120 degrees. Meanwhile, remnants of Fernanda in the Central Pacific could bring some relief to the severe drought conditions over Maui. And what's now major Hurricane Hillary moving north along the Baja of California will bring severe impacts to much of California and the southwestern U.S. late this weekend and next week with life-threatening flash floods, damaging winds, and beach erosion. This could be the first landfalling tropical system in California in 84 years. The tropical moisture from Hillary may move around that heat dome and into Canada next week, bringing much-needed rain to the wildfires that continue to burn from British Columbia to Quebec province. And finally, what's causing Hillary to take this rare and dangerous path into California? As I've said many times over the years, hurricanes, no matter how small, how large, how weak, how ferocious, they just don't steer themselves. They are steered by weather systems much larger and much stronger. In this case, that weather system is the incredibly large and intense heat dome that has over half the nation in its grip. 
subtropical highs are the second strongest weather system on Earth, second only to Arctic highs. This subtropical high or heat dome centered over the middle of the country, combined with a trough of low pressure off the Pacific coast, are working in tandem to provide a perfect conduit or channel for Hillary to move. The movement is rare, but not unprecedented. However, the potential damage from floods, flash floods, and debris flows could be devastating or even catastrophic in parts of the Golden State where over a foot of rain is possible. Meanwhile, the tropical Atlantic is finally waking up with several tropical waves, one which will likely bring excessive rainfall to the Florida Peninsula this weekend. Now my exclusive WOMR weekend weather forecast for the Outer Cape. This afternoon, mostly cloudy, breezy, and humid with a good chance of showers and thunderstorms. A few storms may be strong. Highs around 79. Tonight, partly cloudy, breezy, and turning less humid. Lows around 66. Saturday, morning sunshine. Then a mix of sun and clouds during the afternoon, along with a passing light shower or sprinkle. Continued breezy, but much less humid. Highs around 74. Sunday, abundant sunshine, breezy, and warmer. Highs around 81. As always, stay safe and informed by keeping an eye to the sky and an ear to the radio. Have a wonderful weekend, everybody. I'm Weather Will. How are you doing so far this summer? I mean, confrontation-wise. Have you had any run-ins with angry people? You may have been cut off on Route 6, honked at, given the finger, received the stink eye, or cussed out. But out here, we kind of expect that in the summer months, when temperatures soar, traffic stacks up, and tens of thousands of people spend many thousands of dollars pursuing a pleasurable vacation in a narrow place that comfortably serves a fraction of that number. Personally, I've only had one issue, very minor given the state of people's behavior today, but it shook me to the core nonetheless. I was in the supermarket on a long line when I spoke to the woman in front of me, asking if she intended to place the items in her cart on the checkout conveyor belt. And I soon realized the resulting altercation was all my fault because, well, I had spoken to her. I could have been sarcastic. I could have asked if she intended to gift her groceries one by one to the clerk. I could have drawn her attention to the plastic checkout divider in front of her with about two empty feet of space behind it. But my question, as nicely as I could phrase it, struck her as an attack on her judgment, her intelligence, and her morality. Or so I thought, after ruminating about it in the front seat of my car. The blowback I received at that moment, the tirade, the rapid-fire barrage of insults, the specks of exploding spit on my shirt, certainly showed that I had triggered an affront to her character that was far more damning than any suggestion that we might 
maybe speed up the line. But nothing has happened since, I'm pleased to report, because I've taken measures to prevent any such incidents. I basically turn a blind eye to unfamiliar faces, restrain myself from talking to newcomers, give people a very wide berth on the sidewalks, and in what strikes me as a pitiful strategy for a gregarious grown-up man, do as my mother instructed me as a little boy, stay away from strangers. I don't know why people are acting so crazy. I don't know why people are flying into rages on airplanes, assaulting flight attendants when their chosen meals are unavailable or their entertainment systems are out of order. I don't know why a person might change a baby's diaper on the tray table next to another passenger or try to violently pry open a restroom door while it's clearly marked occupied. Nor do I know why people look at their cell phones in crowded movie theaters or think it's okay to break into loud conversation during slow parts of the movie. Restaurants are equally aggravating these days. Ever encounter a Mercedes SUV holding up the traffic in a parking lot, unload a family of eight on a Saturday night at six o'clock and throw a hissy fit if they don't get a table right away? We see it in schools. We see it in hospitals and all too often in public meetings. The most terrifying new twist is the epidemic of hit and runs that make up the breaking news every evening. For a long time, I got used to seeing them reported from the suburbs. But then, a beloved music teacher from Connecticut was left for dead on Route 6, about two miles from my house. The experts, of course, are ready with their opinions. They say that since the pandemic, everyone is teetering slightly closer to their breaking point more likely to be pushed over the edge by any innocuous request. That the isolation of the pandemic completely destroyed all our social ties. But the terrible irony is that isolation, the very thing that may have caused all this unhinged behavior, is the only way to protect yourself from it. Whatever, like many of my friends, I'll be in hiding until Labor Day. I'm Ira Wood, and that's my opinion. And that does it for this week's edition of Outer Cape News. Thanks go to the Provincetown Independent, the Provincetown Banner, the Cape Codder, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. Thanks also to Beth Dunn, Will David, and Ira Wood for their contributions to the program. And thanks to Henry and Jane Fisher and Jacob Greenberg for being sustaining members of Outer Cape News. And now stay tuned for Friday Afternoon Jazz. It's Stirred Not Shaken with Hank and Andy on listener-supported community radio, WOMR. Yo, 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 yo.
Mm-hmm.